Welcome, gentle listeners, to The Daily Nightly, a Jane Austen journey where we'll be reading the collective works of Austen and exploring her influence in pop culture. We are your humble servants. I'm Annie. And I'm Jessie. And today we're going to be talking about chapters 11 through 15 of Jane Austen's Mansfield Park. Oh, I'm ready. Are you? I don't know if <laughs> I am. But before we get into the whole meaty bit of it, uh, what are you reading right now, Jessie? Yeah, so since we last talk, I, I've actually read a lot, but I haven't loved anything. Um, they've all been pretty good and taken my mind off, you know, real life. One of my most anticipated new releases of the year has been Concrete Rose by Angie Thomas. Uh, she wrote The Hate You Give, and this is a prequel of sorts about the life of Star's father, Maverick, when he's 17 and finds out that he's a father. The book is only really a snapshot of the life and... And it does sort of toy with what you know about Maverick from The Hate You Give. Uh, but it's a lot about him being a 17-year-old and, you know, sort of having one foot in and one foot out of gang life and taking care of his mother. You know, he has his girlfriend, Lisa, but then his son, Seven, is from a different woman and balancing all of those things and, and how he wants to live his life. Uh, it was really, really interesting and I enjoyed a lot of it, um, maybe because I... I've just recently gone through the newborn stuff myself. It was a little hard to read in, in book form, but obviously if anyone has read The Hate You Give, uh, which I think tons and tons of people have because it's been number mm -hmm. one on the New York Times bestseller list forever and, and the movie's very good about it, I think this is definitely, you'll like this. Angie Thomas is such a great writer and um, mm -hmm. the book is really good. Uh, I also read Roman and Jewel by Dana Davis, which is about the understudy for a Broadway show, Roman and Jewel. And it's a hip hopera, which is a horrible thing that I just said out loud. <laughs> um, and it's it's a basically a perform a production of Romeo and Juliet. It has a diverse cast, and it's like using hip hop sort of like Hamilton. Which this obviously hooked me right away. I love Broadway, and I love reading stories about Broadway. Mm -hmm. uh, the first half is just really good. Jersey is the understudy and has like immediate chemistry with the actor who's playing Roman, and it's a super fun premise. I think it kind of leans a little into the melodrama of Romeo and Juliet a little too much in the the halfway after the halfway point but it was really fun and if you like Broadway you should definitely check it out so yeah those are just a couple of the things that I think our listeners might like those sound really really awesome and I definitely want to add both of them to my list I just remember having a lot of feelings about the hate you give uh when I read it and then when the movie came out so much ugly crying and you know I love Broadway too so <laughs> Yeah, so I think I think they're they're worth checking out. I didn't I can't say I like loved either of them, but I really mm -hmm. liked both of them. I mean, sometimes that's all you can ask for. Just not to waste your time with a book. Uh, what about you? <laughs> I feel like most times we get together to talk, I'm just giving excuses for not having read more, but life, no. whatever. Uh, <laughs> and then I cycle back around to not um, shaving myself for just reading at my own pace. So I am still reading the same two books as last time. Uh, what's it? The Lady's Guide to Petticoats and Piracy by Mackenzie Lee and also Mythos uh, by Stephen Fry, both of which I am enjoying immensely. This, the latter of which is also a 16-hour book. So, Whoa, yeah. It's, it's basically like all of Greek mythology without really discussing the, the Greek heroes because that's all separate in a different book which I may push off for later in the year, <laughs> just with the immense taking on that it is, that is the first book. Um, but it's such a delightful listen. It's really nice to have in the background or to really listen to. Uh, it tells all the different stories in nice little bites and in little sections. So it's nothing that you have to really like pour all your attention into. So I'd still recommend them. Nothing has happened in either that have made me change my mind. But I am looking forward to, to finishing them up soon. And I have so many more to choose from afterwards. My gosh. No, I mean, it's the beginning of the year. I think I've read like too many things. So I'm feeling a little like burnt out. So I think we're on like separate edges of the, the spectrum. So I think we'll, we have some time. We'll swing back and forth. <laughs> but what we are definitely for sure reading is Mansfield Park. Yes. So I think, Annie, are you ready to tell us what previously happened um, in our in our reading. No, but I'm going to do it anyways. <laughs> so <laughs> I feel like I depend on these previously ons and summaries as much as anyone else because so much gets packed into each chapter. 
So to remind everyone what happened last time, previously on Mansfield Park, love is blooming around the park. The pretty and alluring Mary Crawford has set her sights newly on Edmund, who, despite being the second son and (gasps) a future clergyman, is infinitely more interesting than boring, charming... 'er ne'er-do-well Tom. Edmund is enraptured with Miss Crawford to the point where he seemingly will abandon Fanny in the middle of a forest when she's tired, even letting Mary take out her horse. Our crew decides to go to Southerton, where the Bertram sisters fight over Henry Crawford to the point where Julia's jealous and Maria's in jeopardy of losing out on her engagement to the boring yet rich Mr. Rushworth. Our love triangles begin to take shape as the party arrives at Southerton, where Edmund and Mary wander off together, even after Mary embarrasses everyone with her disdain for Edmund's future profession. Mariah and Henry go off together as well, abandoning Julia as well as Mary's fiancé, who used poor Fanny as his sounding board. And Fanny, once again, is abandoned by everyone and forced to wait in the middle of the gardens on a bench for them to return. The group returns to Mansfield Park a little sadder, but also with much less room thanks to all the crap Mrs. Norris brings back with her. Because she gets gifts, y'all. I mean, I can't fault her for that, even if she is sort of annoying. Yeah, I mean, free stuff is hard to turn down. (laughs) Even if she probably manipulated her way into some free stuff. I can't fault her for this, unfortunately. (laughs) I want All right, so... Okay, here we go. Once the group returns from their trip to Southerton, a very unwelcome letter arrives letting them know that, ugh, Sir Thomas will be returning in three months. Maria is anxious because her father's return will mean that she will have to get married, and the rest are concerned because they've been having a great time without Sir Thomas there, and he will likely be a huge buzzkill. Edmund will also have to take his order soon upon his father's return, and of course Mary insists on teasing him. Her teasing results in insulting Dr. Grant, which offends Fanny. Fanny and Edmund have a nice moment away from Mary where they go off together and look at the stars. Edmund seems just as enraptured with Mary trying to justify to Fanny her bad habits and cruelty by saying she had a, quote, precarious upbringing. Fanny changes the subject, but Edmund soon leaves her to rejoin the rest of the party. In anticipation of Sir Thomas's return, Tom returns to Mansfield Park. Mary Crawford is now repelled by him and definitely interested in his brother Edmund. Henry Crawford returns to his own estate to take care of some business, and Maria and Julia are pained by his absence. Upon Tom's return, a small ball is held at Mansfield, and it's Fanny's first ball. Thomas brought his friend Yates to Mansfield with him. Yates is dull, constantly telling the same story about the amateur theater production in which he's been taking part at the estate he visited before Mansfield. Unfortunately, the host's grandmother died and prevented the performance. Inspired by Yates, Tom proposes that they put on a play at Mansfield. Everyone likes the idea except Edmund and Fanny. Edmund is opposed to private theater and mentions that a play could jeopardize Maria's engagement. Edmund is overruled and they decide to build a theater in Sir Thomas's room, billiard room. Fanny points out that the group is pretty indecisive and will probably have a hard time finding a play that fits everyone's taste and that it will probably be abandoned. Fanny proves almost correct and finding the right play for this group proves difficult. Half the group wants comedy, the other half wants tragedy, and of course there are no good roles for women. The group projects, am I right? (laughs) Finally, they settle on Lover's Vow, the piece Yates was supposed to have performed previously. The play is scandalous, featuring illegitimate children and bowed declarations of love, and the casting will create for some awkward onstage couples. Poor Julia is passed over in favor of Maria and Mary for the good part, so she obviously refuses to participate. Rushworth is given a small role where he plays a silly, foppish character. Edmund is still a big buzzkill about the play, but is ignored. Mrs. Norris is excited because she senses a moment to be the center of attention. A clergy character named Anhalt is still uncast, and as he ends up married to Mary Crawford's sexually aggressive character, Mm. Tom tries to get Edmund to play him. Edmund refuses, so they get a neighbor to participate. A small role is offered to Fanny, who refuses, and is attacked by both Tom and Mrs. Norris, who call her ungrateful. Mary comes to her rescue, but Fanny is skeptical by all her friendliness. And Mm. that is where we are left off. Oh, my goodness. So much drama and tension (laughs) over something that it's so funny to think like, you know, as a kid, you put on all these plays and stuff with your friends. And that's what all this drama is going over, except they have the ability to build their own theater. <laughs> well, because once upon a time, it is it just acting in general wasn't the most 
honorable of professions, I guess, or not seen as the most honorable of professions. And even now, it still gets a lot of pushback. But especially for the ladies, it's not super great. Um, certainly not gentlewomen. No, Edmund was saying that it could jeopardize Mary Maria's engagement, which sort of shocked me. But then I guess, you know, acting is a profession for not middle class or upper middle class people. It's something separate. Um, and so putting on this like private theater is fairly scandalous, even though Mary's fiance is performing in it. Which is the part that always gets me. I'm like, but and I think at some point someone does make that argument as well. Is it Mariah herself who actually says, you know, my own fiance is going to be here? It's so weird, and so which makes one their excitement and enthusiasm to do it really odd to the to me as a modern day reader. But that makes Edmund's reluctance or his antagonism of everyone who wants to do it even stranger. Edmund really comes off fairly bad here. You know, like I like I understand that there are reservations in having this play, but he just seems like such a buzzkill. He's just like, no, like we can't have the play here. Like we can't have fun. Like this could jeopardize everything. Uh, yeah, very much. Um, I was thinking the phrase sanctimonious ass. Yes, that's that is much better than mine. I'm sorry. Sanctimonious <laughs> no, buzzkill is also perfect. <laughs> I think because like I was re I was reading up on this a little bit and I think so if we're gonna go through this we're maybe starting with Edmund to begin our discussion. I, I wonder if he's sort of overcompensating because of his brother. Because mm. Tom is allowed you know, Tom is the older brother, so Tom is allowed to sort of do whatever he wants without any consequences because that's just the way he was born. And even though Edmund is the better person, he has to take up a profession. He has to become a clergyman in order to, like, have a living and go on. Uh, so he's sort of overcompensating for his older brother's ridiculousness by being, like, the moral center of the family. And maybe he's going a little overboard, at least in my modern sensibilities, which I feel like I have to caveat all of a lot of the things I'll think in these reading yeah he's so hard to to really understand and reconcile as you know allegedly our main man for our main girl but that's such a that's such a great point especially thinking about the fact that while Tom was gone and had only just come back from whatever he was doing Edmund was the one who was taking care of the household and doing a fine job of it by what it seemed. And now his brother comes in and everyone is just swept up and away with his enthusiasm and charm. Not to mention the fact that it seems like Mary has slightly shifted her attentions back to Tom as well. That's not helping. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I mean, I know he's supposed to be the clergyman. He's supposed to be the moral compass because he actually uh, he wants to take vows. He wants to join the order or whatever. Um, as he was telling Mary earlier on in, I think, chapter 11, it's not a huge surprise that he's playing his role. But the fact that he is so vehement about it is it's so hard. <laughs> I just don't really get it. I mean, I do, but I don't. Yeah, I think we have to take his word for it that this mm -hmm. is a bad, like him and Fanny's word for it, that this is a bad idea, even though we might sort of be like, let them have their fun, who cares? Um, but because Fanny and Edmund seem to be our main protagonists, it does seem sort of seem like something bad is going to happen with this play. <laughs> the The foreshadowing is very interesting. It's so interesting that we have our two alleged main characters here be so focused on propriety and so hard to... I don't want to say the word penetrate, but as characters, they're really hard to penetrate and like really get into their shoes and sympathize with. Mm -hmm. But that's the only word I can think of. And I'm so sorry. No, I it's, it's, this book has been a little bit more difficult for me, not because of maybe the writing or the plot, but because of the characters that we're supposed to root for. Like we, mm -hmm. I do root for Fanny. I feel bad for her. But a lot of the times I get frustrated with both her and Edmund for reasons that we talked about last time, but also, you know, like Edmund, I mean, Mary's trashing your entire profession. She's saying extremely rude things. And then you sort of have the nerve to like go over to Fanny and say, don't listen to her. Like she has all these beliefs, but whatever. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, it's, it's, it's very frustrating. Uh, I get, we're only, you know, 30% or so through with the book, but it's so far it's very frustrating because we want to root for these characters. But at the same time, we're like, Fanny, just say a couple words in the play. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I do also understand her anxiety, but at the of same course. Mm-hmm. time, well, I mean, and, and part of me sees it as her trying to remain loyal to Edmund too, not just like her own fear of like saying words and trying to act and be that person when she has always been someone who's been sequestered away from the attention. But I imagine some of the panic is also related to if I say yes to this, that means I'm going against Edmund, whom I love. Mm -hmm. I'm just constantly blown away by how this book really messes with my expectations and what I've come to assume will be in a typical Jane Austen story about who your heroes are, about who the bad people are, who the frustrating people are, and what the rules are, which is mm-hmm. awesome. But also it's it's such a, an adjustment that even, you know, 15 chapters in, I'm still having a kind of a hard time with it sometimes, just like you. Oh, yeah. Like ordinarily, like a character like Mary Crawford, who's, you know, fun and free and flirty and um, I guess sexually aggressive in some ways. But <laughs> she see and like she at the one point she even stands up for Fanny at the end when everyone's picking on her. And so I feel like I'm having knowing that Fanny is supposed to be our protagonist and the person that I want to end up the happiest, I guess, at the end of the book. I, I'm I'm wondering if a lot of it is just my more modern sensibilities and mm-hmm. also sort of what I've come to expect from Austen and following Pride and Prejudice. You know, Lizzie is sort of the Mary Crawford of Pride and Prejudice. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating to have to adjust my expectations as well as try to put myself in the Regency era and think what Mary's doing here and Mary's saying here is inappropriate versus now when I look back on it and it's like, Mary's just being free. She's being cool like <laughs> yes I, it's it's a really interesting thought exercise I think there's a part in chapter 11 where Mary and Edmund are having discussion about Edmund taking orders and Mary's making a comment about how you know it's so interesting that Mariah's taking uh making the sacrifice of getting married for her family and it's super like an awesome coincidence that you want to take orders when that's also what will be most helpful to your father's wishes and Edmund's getting defensive and saying, you know, like, both of us are are making the choice to do this. This is something we both want to do. You know, Mariah wants to get married. I want to join the clergy. And he even, like, accuses Miss Crawford of only taking on the opinions of her uncle and how limited his opinions are because of, of his status and what the people that he acquaints himself with being in, what's it, the Navy, being an admiral. And uh, she's talking about how she has her own experiences as well, mainly Uh, She's talking about her brother-in-law, who's married to a a sister that she really loves. And she refers to him, you know, she says that he, Dr. Grant, is kind and obliging and a gentleman and a good scholar and clever and respectable. But she sees him as an indolent, selfish bon vivant who must have his palate consulted in everything, who will not stir a finger for the convenience of anyone, and who, moreover, if the cook makes a blunder, is out of humor with his excellent wife. And I said the same thing you did. In that moment, she felt so Lizzie Bennet. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And I was like, I, it's really hard not to root for you sometimes, Mary. You need to make this less hard for me. Well, yeah. And I think it's also the way that religion is so important into this, into the society. So I think a lot, I don't want to say that we're like jaded or, or not religious or anything like that, because I don't want to make that generalization. But I think our more modern sensibilities, at least for me, I tend to not, I tend to share a lot of Mary's sort of jadedness about a lot of clergy sort of generally. Mm -hmm. And so I think back then it maybe wasn't as acceptable to have these hot takes, I guess. And so what Mary's saying is fairly blasphemous, especially to someone who wants to be a member of the clergy, whereas our modern sensibilities, which is a phrase I keep saying and I apologize, is definitely different than it is for them. Clergy is so important. Like these big estates have a clergy member who lives there. Like that's what Edmund's going to be, the clergy member for Mansfield Park. So it's just a completely different world than than maybe what we're more used to. So for them to say these things about clergy and to make these overgeneralizations is a lot different than it would be if I was at a bar with friends and someone said Mm -hmm. exactly the same thing. I completely Agree. And because Miss Crawford, she has her own experiences. And I, I love that she asserts like, no, this is this is my opinion. And I've just seen a lot of clergymen not be very great people. So sorry, uh, Edmund. I do think it's really 
interesting too that like one Jane Austen herself she was the daughter of a rector so someone who who worked in that in that field but at the same time in the last two books we read or not the last two books in Pride and Prejudice you know we have Mr. Collins who was a cleric and who just was a hypocrite and self-important and just an incredibly intolerable human being and then later on you know we're going to encounter a few other characters that are not exactly savorable people who are also people who've taken vows i love the turn that it takes but also it's so it's it's just hard it's just hard i'm gonna keep saying that but it's it's something to contend with no that's a really good point to bring up the clergy that we've met in austin books that aren't these upstanding versions of the clergy that edmund aspires to be in fact like edmund might be the first one that we've met and really feel that he wants to do good necessarily so Mm -hmm. it isn't even just our modern sensibilities uh it isn't even just us growing up now where we are it is actually in austin's world there are exactly those type of clergy that mary talks about so it's funny that mary is not the audience surrogate or whatever it's it's fanny (laughs) i guess i kind of get it because you know i i was raised in a very catholic environment and you know a lot of things came out during the past uh, 30 years that made the church look even less savory than it often does uh, on a low-key but constant basis. Um, But at the same time, if I come across like a movie like Calvary starring Brendan Gleeson and directed by, I think, John Francis McDonough, which is a story just that's just about a good man who has taken vows to become a priest. And it's just nice. It's nice to also have a story that isn't just, hey, all these people are terrible Let's just write them all off. And at some point, Edmund even says something to that effect where he's like talking about Mary's uncle's generalization of the clergy. And when Mary is talking about like, I don't know what she say. I speak what appears to me the general opinion and where an opinion is general, it is usually correct. And Edmund does not like that. He's just like, you know, whenever there's like a generalization like that of an, a prejudice or discrimination, there must be a deficiency of information or of something else. But that might also just be him being defensive. At the very least, I think it's rude of Mary to keep pushing these buttons about being a clergy. I think there's there's teasing about it, and then there's just kind of going on and on and on about it. And it's clearly a sore spot with Edmund. And so to keep just pushing and pushing and pushing about it, I think is probably not what you'd want to do if you are really into somebody. And so regardless of how, you know, Austin views the clergy, I think we do have to recognize that what Mary's doing isn't really fun flirting anymore. It's sort of just rude and obnoxious. I mean, it's very much the same energy of, you know, of Lizzie Bennet just making fun of Darcy for not wanting to dance. But at that time, she genuinely didn't like him and didn't have feelings for him. Mm -hmm. So the fact that Mary is into Edmund at this time when she's doing all this makes it very, very... I, she's missing the mark, I would say. Yes, yeah. It, it makes you wonder, like, is this how Mary, like, gets her, her men, sort of thing? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's her distancing herself from Edmund because Tom is now available again. Oh, yeah. I mean, I also do think a lot of the times when Edmund is being sort of rude, where he keeps, like, defending Mary, especially to Fanny of all people, he might be maybe trying to make Fanny jealous on, like, a subconscious level. That's the most generous thing I can think about to say, Mm. um, even though that's still, like, really not generous because it's really rude. (laughs) (laughs) That and convincing himself that, no, everything that I'm mentioning is, it's fine. It's something that I am not ignoring. It's just, it's, I don't have to ignore it. It's fine. It's fine. Maybe he's convincing himself more than he is Fanny. I mean, Edmund, Edmund isn't just a complete pushover, especially later when they're when he's really upset about the play and everyone just keeps like wheedling him about it. Mm-hmm. He gets in, he actually gets in sort of like a shot because um, they keep wanting him to, to be this clergy character. And they say, you know, if any part could tempt you to act, I suppose it would be a null, observed the lady archly after a short pause, for he is a clergyman, you know. And she's clearly baiting him to flirt with him, but then he sort of turns the tables on her and says, that circumstance would be by, would by no means tempt me, he replied, for I should be sorry to make the character ridiculous by bad acting. It must be very difficult to keep a null from appearing a formal solemn lecturer, and the man who chooses the profession itself is perhaps one of the last who should wish to represent it on stage. Miss Crawford was silenced, and with some feelings of resentment and mortification, moved her chair considerably nearer the tea table. So that's sort of like, uh, 
shots fired from mm-hmm. Edmund about it. And he really, you can tell that her teasing has started to get under his skin. And then in the addition of this play, and she's like, well, you could be the clergyman. He's like, no, that's an insult to clergymen everywhere. How dare you? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of one of the last things we hear from him at the end of that chapter. It's almost like she finally crossed the line with him and is aware of it. The only time I think you really hear from him otherwise is when they're when they call Fanny over and try to guilt her into being in the play too for a little bit of it. And Edmund defends her, which is not which is something he seems to just do regardless. And he mm-hmm. he very clearly draws a boundary. You know, it's not fair to urge her in this manner. You see, she does not like to act. Let her choose for herself as well as the rest of us. Her judgment may be quite cl- quite as safely trusted. Do not urge her anymore. And that's I'm I've, I'm pretty I feel like that's very sincere on her behalf. But it also seems like all the guilting and cajoling and like wheedling that they're trying to do to get him to join in on it and take over the part of Anhal. It's also kind of like him stating his own feelings about himself, too. And then afterwards, you know, when they suggest bringing someone else in from outside, even though the whole thing was like, it's fine, it's going to be private, no one needs to know about what's happening. They keep looking over at Edmund waiting for his judgment. And he doesn't take the bait at all. He's just very like, I'm not going to play this figurative role of being the one who ruins your fun, <laughs> let alone play the role in the in the play as well. <laughs> That's I like that. Yeah, I think like, la- like when we've talked about Edmund previous to this, mostly it's been Edmund is so good. He's so good to Fanny. Like even when he forgets her, he remembers her later and he, and he goes out of his way to help her. But I think here it's we're sort of getting the sense that Edmund needs to grow up also. He's still blinded by Mary being attractive and being into him. There's a part where Fanny and Edmund are talking about the love triangle with Henry, Mariah, and Julia. And Edmund says, Fanny may be aware, for I believe it often happens that a man, before he has quite made up his own mind, will distinguish the sister or intimate friend of the woman he is really thinking of more than the woman himself. And I put in sort of bold caps next to that in my in my show notes. You don't say, Edmund. So, <laughs> so maybe he's sort of on an or on an unconscious level recognizing that you know he's he's into this other woman but maybe he's really into Fanny I don't know but I Mm -hmm. I do think Edmund needs to grow a little bit if even with this woman just constantly berating him in his profession uh, he still wants her which is probably something a lot of us need to grow from (laughs) not being distracted by the shiny thing in the corner sometimes feelings are irrational that's because they're feelings and not you know, logic, which is fine, Edmund. It's nice. I think we've said this before. It's nice that you've got a character, uh, a, a love interest for our main character who has to develop and grow as well and who's also going to make mistakes, especially with someone as retiring and and small as Fanny. Mm-hmm. It's kind of nice. She doesn't take up a lot of space in the story, even though she's ostensibly our main character. So it's nice to have a story, an arc for her love interest as well as basically everyone else. Yeah, I loved what you just said about Fanny, how she takes up so little space on the page for being our protagonist. You know, here we are 25, 30% of the way in the book, and I still don't really have a grasp on who Fanny is as a character, which is something that both frustrates me and sort of intrigues me, because I do mm-hmm. want to root for her, and I want her to stand up for herself, but I also want her to be happy, and I don't, I'm starting to see a lot of anxiety tells in her that mm-hmm. make me really introspective and think about my own social anxieties, and it's so easy for me as the reader to sit there and say Fanny stick up for yourself stand up for yourself but I wasn't raised to always feel inferior to everyone else I wasn't raised like Fanny as an outsider in my own family and she's so intimidated and scared by being the center of attention which is something that I struggle with constantly mm-hmm. I am trying to remind myself to not get frustrated want her to be someone who she isn't but instead to take up more space on the page as Fanny and not something someone that I want Fanny to be that's not herself I think um, some of the hard just on a personal level I think some of the characters that are hardest to really connect with even if they're you know no matter how well written they are just if there's someone who just reminds you more of your own personal weaknesses, and just like you said, she does remind me a lot of 
different personal anxieties. There were two moments in chapter 15 that kind of really got me for her. Both related to the same moment. One of them was when they was when they were talking and Tom says at some point he's just like you know Fanny come on over we want your services and she immediately it says she was up in a moment expecting some errand and it's like her first instinct is they need me to do something for them not hey we want to include you we want you to do something fun in our opinion fun and I was just like you <laughs> poor thing because it's just habit for her to just immediately answer someone's call and expect to have to do something for them and then when Mrs. Norris in particular just really lays into her when she says no and tries to refuse a part of it and she tells her you know she really goes into like the the greatest hits of terrible um, so bad toxic guardian relationship talk with saying things like i am i'm quite ashamed of you fanny to make such a difficulty of obliging your cousin such a trifle of this sort so kind as they are to you take the part with a good grace and let us hear no more of the matter and that's what causes Edmund to stand up and defend for her you know she's calling her obstinate and ungrateful and it's kind of this like low-key gaslighting about how amazingly everyone treats her and how she's being a terrible selfish person basically by saying no and it's just really hard in those it's oh my god keep I need a different word other than hard but I can't not have a great deal of sympathy for her in seeing that because she is trying so much to be what they expect her to be to fill this role that she wasn't really meant to even though she she is in a lot of ways you know they're equal she is their cousin by blood and they just they just make her feel like she's not anything it's a really horrible scene on initial read and then on reread just capturing all those things and my heart just my heart really breaks when you say that that line about her having to get up and immediately thinking she was needed for an errand because It's just so psychologically horrible and it makes me just really, really sad because I I think I sort of glossed over that on my own reading. And there's uh, the scene that I was thinking that you were going to mention is when he calls her, uh, Tom calls her over and Fanny is, quote, shocked to find herself at that moment the only speaker in the room and to feel that almost every eye was upon her. Uh, and then uh. she's just like, you know, she, you must excuse me. Indeed, you must excuse me, cried Fanny, growing more and more red from excessive agitation and looking distressingly at Edmund, who was kindly observing her but unwilling to exasperate his brother by interference. It gave her only a, an encouraging smile. So even Edmund, who's her only champion in the room, just sort of sits there and gives her a weak smile because he just doesn't want to deal with his brother. And that whole scene, that whole chapter is just – is really mortifying for Fanny and and it plays on all of her insecurities. I think this is the first time where we've gone past passive aggression and gone mm. on just full aggression at Fanny. It is really interesting to see how whatever, I don't know, agency or strength or ability to like stand up for herself may have been there. It's just these tiny, like basically micro microaggressions that probably have just been chipping away at it constantly, just constantly undermining her, constantly like making her feel, you know, less sure footed in who she is. So, I mean, I guess looking at it that way, just so many years of people talking to her like that and pushing her around. No wonder she is this very small, passive person who just kind of lets things happen to her even though it's incredibly frustrating as a reader and we even have mary who's never been like that huge a fan of fanny not even being able to take it and being the one to stand up for her and come over to her side you know be a friend to her this is like i'm gonna say something that's probably gonna ruin the moment and i apologize but it makes (laughs) me think about um the season of the bachelor where all these women are, are vying for this man's attention and there are a couple women that are making themselves known by being, being quote-unquote like the villain, being, you know, really strong personalities and saying things to get camera time and, and to stay around. It's just classic stuff. Even if you don't watch The Bachelor, it should sort of ring ahead. And and this one girl has sort of been picking on other girls that she perceives as weak or maybe more in favor of the, the Bachelor. And... It's been very frustrating as a watcher this season as someone that does enjoy reality television and like the like the natural like fights that break out to just watch them pick on this like one girl that is viewed as sort of weak and finally this past week one of the other girls like stood up for the other girl and I never liked 
her that much, but just the mere act of standing up in a group situation for the one mm-hmm. person that's being picked on is something that I I want to be that person, and it makes me like Mary even more, and I feel bad oh. about it. <laughs> I don't think you should feel bad about it, though. She is a great character, even though she is in her own way trying to figure out her own marital status with not quite figuring out whether she wants Tom or Edmund either. And that moment where she does stand up for for Fanny, it is a, such a great moment because, like, Ed, like you said, Edmund doesn't even respond; he's too angry. And Miss Crawford just is like, I, I honestly, I can't, I can't believe you guys are just talking to her like this. I honestly can't even do it, and I just still have to do something, even if it wasn't really defending Fanny aloud, but like that quiet moment of solidarity. It was a really like, it was a really lovely moment, and I don't think that it hurt <laughs> either. That Edmund was just like, no, that's awesome. That's great i you're right i do i do like you sneaky i can't believe i mentioned the bachelor too i'm so sorry (laughs) no never be sorry for that just even as someone who doesn't watch it it's a it's a fascinating take on humanity to be honest even even what is manipulated The, the interpersonal dynamics here are a lot more nuanced, I think, than the ones we've seen previously. You know, in both Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice, we had mostly female characters picking on another character. And, you know, they're pretty strict delineations of this character we don't like, this character we like. Here, it feels a lot more... You know, even Miss Bingley, we we sort of did feel bad for her a little bit, even when she Mm -hmm. was being rude to Elizabeth. She was like 90% the worst, though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so now with the introduction of this character, in particular Mary Crawford, it's it's sort of fascinating to get... I mean, maybe Jane wants us to not like her at all, but I just don't really believe that based on this scene. I think that it's not even like the first time she has been a reasonable, logical, rational person. So I don't... No, I agree with you fully. I don't think we're supposed to dislike her. I do think the complexity in her being the antagonist, quote unquote antagonist, is intentional. It feels very intentional. And even the other women, you know, Mariah and Julia, who I don't necessarily think the best of, I mean, they're not standing up for Fanny, but they're not really being that horrible to her. And they're not objects of give her getting in the way of anything that fanny wants maybe like mary mm-hmm. is they're just sort of lost in their own soap opera and they're oh funny God. characters that i pity in some ways and i find entertaining in other ways and mm-hmm. i don't really view them as the villains either i think the only person i really just really don't like is uh mrs norris oh my god mrs norris Let's talk about Mrs. Norris. I don't like Mrs. Norris. I She's mean, that's bad. <laughs> She's so bad. First of all, I mean, she treats Fanny horribly and, uh, again, gaslights her as if her existence hasn't been really crummy for a lot of her, her stay at Mansfield Park. She's also the reason why she's at Mansfield Park in the first place. <gasps> she makes her feel terrible for having some, you know, setting some boundary of not doing a thing she doesn't really, 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 really want to do. And then at some point, she finds, oh, when um, when Edmund is against the play and he's like, maybe even Mrs. Norris will be on my side, maybe at least her, and she's not, she uses this as like an opportunity to talk about how clever she is. And then she tells the story again, like a paragraph later. I am sorry, but my mind is still sort of blown from you pointing out that the whole reason that Fanny is there in the first place is because of Mrs. Norris. <laughs> and how she like dares now turn around and say, you know, you're lucky to be here. I, I'm just even more and- flabbergasted at this woman, the gall of this woman. <laughs> And she doesn't even do, she has like no participation whatsoever in Fanny's care either on top of everything. Oh, what a truly, truly horrible person. Like before I didn't like her, but now I just like (laughs) now putting all the pieces together. She is odious. She's genuinely the only truly terrible character. I mean, I mean I she's a great character, but she's a terrible mm-hmm. human. You love to hate her. Like, it definitely. Oh, gosh. At least with Lady Catherine, it was kind of funny after a while, you know? But mm-hmm. with Mrs. Norris, she's just worn out her welcome. 
And Lady Catherine had this sort of, you know, being like a rich, like wealthy woman in this time, like widow, you kind of like respect the game a little bit. And you're like, I see where you come from. You know, you don't want to sully the walls of Pemberley and blah, blah, blah. But Mrs. Norris, <laughs> you don't, you like barely have anything. Like the only reason she has anything at all is because of her sister and who her sister married. So this is fascinating. Mm. And then she takes credit for all of it too. Uh, Mrs. Norris, you're the worst. <laughs> She's genuinely one of my least favorite kind of people who exist in the world. For as ridiculous as it seems, it's not something that's so out of nowhere that a person like this would live and breathe in this world. Ooh, yeah, well, I'm uh. getting all riled up. <laughs> I'm not too angry to speak like Edmund, but I'm angry. Yeah, maybe we should talk about Mariah then. <laughs> okay, poor poor Mariah. This girl, someone needs no. an intervention. <laughs> <Sorry, continue. laughs> yes, she she needs someone to come talk to her. <laughs> Uh, I, lo- I love how my fa- my favorite part of these chapters, I think, is like when they get the letter that their father is coming home and everyone, everyone is like, oh, no, <laughs> Sir Thomas is coming back. He's going to ruin all of our fun. I'm going to have to get married now. Yeah. To think of their father in England again within a certain period, which these letters obliged him to do, was a most unwelcome exercise. So mean. Can you imagine being like the person that you come back from being gone like a year and everyone is miserable that you're coming back? Everything is worse because you're back. Uh, I like this hopeful moment that uh, Mariah does have where it's like three months comprise 13 weeks. Much might happen in 13 weeks. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> is this foreshadowing? Probably, actually. What's well, going to happen in 13 weeks because we I've barely been able to like keep up with what's happening in like 13 days. M- Mariah, with only Mr. Rushworth to attend her and doomed to the repeated details of his daily sport, good or bad, his boast of dogs, his jealousy of his neighbors. And I literally wrote dot, dot, dot in my notes because I didn't want to write out the entire paragraph of all the boring <laughs> things that he was telling Mariah. Uh, and so she missed Mr. Crawford grievously, although Julia, unengaged and unemployed, felt all the right of missing him even more. And each sister believed her herself the favorite Whew, this is mm. much drama but this is like the juicy kind of drama that i enjoy versus like <laughs> pounding down fanny's self-esteem it is super juicy just one moment i also enjoyed was when edmund was just like i think mrs grant thinks uh henry prefers julia even if he hasn't seen any evidence of it but fanny thinks that um he actually prefers mariah more quote quote if miss bertram were not engaged oh <laughs> mm. uh yeah. Oh, and Edmund, he's a little more optimistic. You know, Crawford has too much sense to stay here if he found himself in any danger from Mariah. And I am not at all afraid for her after such a proof as she has given that her feelings are not strong. Like, um, Edmund, you might be dumb. I, know, I like how Fanny, like, clearly has the lay of the land, but, like, doesn't want to say anything because, you know, confidence issues and anxiety, which I totally get. And then tries, like, hinting around it. And it's just, like, completely missed by Edmund. Uh- <laughs> Edmund, uh, so smart, but so dumb. And I... I just appreciate I appreciated Fanny in that moment because you're like, wow, you're you're the one who's actually being sensible right now and paying attention. She is really the only sensible one. Um, at the end, when it, when they're all, t- I know we're talking about Mariah, but I like when at the end, like everyone is talking about this play, but Fanny's the only one that actually reads it, and she's like, oh my god, mm-hmm. this is the play you guys wanted. To- <laughs> Do you know what's in here? <laughs> that was a really good moment where she's like, what? Oh, what? <laughs> she's like, I'm the one that actually read the play. Yeah, everyone else seems like they're fine with it. Well. I, could, I had a hard time being really able to tell if the other women were as aware of what happens in the book. But I mean, at some point, you know, Mary's just like, so who's going to be the one who's making love to me? <laughs> Which meant something different than I know, I know, I know. But no, I think we can extrapolate a little bit. Girl knew something and she was playing that game. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I I think it's hard to, especially for these grouping of chapters, to talk about maybe Mariah individually and not in the mm-hmm. context of really her love triangle and Henry's not who's not even present in these chapters and then also Julia. You know what I just realized is really sad. Oh no. We keep calling it a love triangle, but that means we're excluding Rushworth from it. Oh <laughs> then no. it's just Henry, Julia and Mariah. I said there's nothing like bad about Mr. Rushworth. He's like not a bad guy. He's just really boring. So we're just like constantly told about how boring he is, but it's like Come on. He's ring and annoying. He didn't know which which role he wanted to play. He wanted Mariah to choose. And after a while, he's like, no, I've seen it. I'm going to pick the other person and not like, I guess, the lover. And we picked the boring person, too. And he's like, oh, but he dresses so stylishly. And that's like all he cares about. Yeah. And Mariah's like waiting for him to be annoyed that he's playing this character that's 
sort of silly and he just never is. <laughs> and I wish I counted how many times he mentions just how many lines he has. Even <laughs> <laughs> even when, when Fanny's like in a panic trying to say no to the part in the play that they're offering to her, even though it's like hardly anything. He's like, oh, uh, if you're worried with how many lines you have, I mean, it's not like me who has, you know, two and 40 lines or whatever. Like it's funny. So <laughs> it's very funny. <laughs> he was so astute in that moment in the park, but now he's like incapable of reading a room. Everybody, you know, he's. I, I, I am curious how these other. Like, I, I know that I'm rooting for Fanny and Edmund to be together, and because it's a Jane Austen book, I'm sort of assuming that they're going to end up together without knowing any spoilers, actually. But I'm very curious how these other relationships are going to end up. Like, will Mr. Rushworth and Mariah just like be together and boring and rich and happy? I don't know. I'm guessing, but I don't know. I don't. Honestly, I have no idea. I'm half expecting to just be completely disappointed by everything. Yeah. Well, that's like life, I think. Basically. Um, but or like the first season of Sanditon. Oh, why do you got to hit me where it hurts? Eh? <laughs> that's the level where I'm at, though, and I need to share my misery. I mean, they're foreshadowing. They're foreshadowing their engagement's going to break off horribly. I just think people keep mentioning it, that it's a yeah. precarious situation. Like, I mean, the way she's dreading the return of her father because she doesn't want him to marry this guy, it's mm. not a good look. And even when, like, one of Edmund's arguments for not doing this play is it could ruin the engagement between Mariah and Mr. Rushford, even though she's <laughs> participating. And at one point, like, Julia does seem inclined to admit that Mariah's situation might require particular caution and delicacy, but that could not extend her. She was at liberty, and Mariah evidently considered her engagement as only rising so much above restraint. So they want to put on this play so badly. Like, putting on this play could break off the engagement between Mariah and Mr. Rushford, which me would mean that Mariah would be free for Henry. And even knowing that, Julie still wants to do the play. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. I really picture them like the silly stepsisters in Cinderella. Like, not evil stepsisters, but like just very silly. So silly. But <laughs> I have to give Julia some credit because she's really cottoning on to what's going on. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was already aware, you know, with her stalking into the park, you know, looking for her sister and for Henry. But she really seems to be aware of the fact that, wow, her sister does not care about her own happiness at all when mm -hmm. it comes to this. And she just wants to entertain both these men that she has on the line. Yeah. So like uh, when Maria and Julia want to play Agatha, Henry... It's like, hey, no, you shouldn't play her because, like, I wouldn't be able to stand you being so sad and dressed up in woe and paleness, which sounds like crap, but, like, a crap line meant to be like, no, I just, like, I like your face when you're so happy and all that stuff. Until Julia is paying attention. <laughs> Pleasantly, courteously, it was spoken, but the manner was lost in the matter to Julia's feelings. She saw a glance at Mariah, which confirmed the injury to herself. It was a scheme, a trick. She was slighted. Mariah was preferred. The smile of triumph, which Mariah was trying to suppress, showed how well it was understood. Julia well knew that on this ground, Mariah could not be happy, but at her expense. Exactly. Horrible. Exactly. So... <laughs> when they like keep offering her other parts, including Amelia, which eventually goes to Mary Crawford. At that point, Julia's just like, nope, I don't want any of it. You can't offer it to me because I'll just say no. I don't want any of them because rightfully her feelings are hurt now. Mm -hmm. Her sister and this guy that it's supposed to be for her have secretly quietly conspired against her. Yeah, I do feel I do feel for Julia, and and so does Fanny. I think at one point, like Julia storms off, like fine, I don't want to play, and she walks hastily out of the room, leaving awkward feelings of more than one, but exciting small compassion in any, but not exactly small compassion in any except Fanny, who had been a quiet auditor of the whole and who could not think of her as under the agitations of jealousy without great pity. So, Fanny, our our the person that we're rooting for, does feel bad for Julia. So I feel bad for Julia. Mm -hmm. That sucks. That really does suck. But you know. She's a bad, a bad sport about it. <laughs> I guess she's, um, I still see her as a more the stepsisters in Ever After, <laughs> that okay. version of Cinderella. Yeah. Because you have like the slightly more sympathetic sister. Mm -hmm. I see it. That's exactly what I was getting at. Yes. Yes. Because then you see someone who she's part of the, the people against Cinderella. But at the same time, she's realizing like, wait, without, if you're not picking on, on Fanny, that means you're all picking on it's me. I'm the one. <gasps> yes. And that's terrible. That's a that's a very selfish way of looking at it, but it's probably exactly how she feels. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's not really displayed herself to be a person of complete selflessness. I think it was actually Mariah, though, who one time stood up a little bit for Fanny in the last 
section mm-hmm. when Mrs. Norris was laying into Fanny. So at least there's that. Yeah, I mean, they all sort of show a moment of uh, feeling for Fanny before their own self-interest takes over, I guess, which is to their credit, maybe. They've sp- they, you know, they've, they've been brought up since they were like 12 to not think of Fanny as their sibling on purpose. So I guess I can't necessarily like blame them completely. Um, I think they're just sort of selfish brats, which mm-hmm. is fine. They weren't exactly raised to be more complex, mm-hmm. emotionally intelligent, <laughs> considerate, selfless people, which I mean, at some point... They can't keep using that excuse, but yeah. but uh, I don't see anyone also encouraging them to do some self-discovery and working on who they are as people. No, I, I don't really see that happening for them, but who knows? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> who knows? Maybe Julia will take this time and reflect on men getting between her and her beloved sister. That's very optimistic of you. I, I really hope you go through life like that, thinking things like that. <laughs> I don't, but <laughs> it's sometime, sometimes you have to lie to yourself. No, that's true. And I I hope, you know, they end up mildly pleased with with the results they get. Oh, you know what? You know who is also slightly villain? Friggin' Henry. Oh, well, Henry's not even here. (laughs) I'm not seeing anything redeemable about him yet. He's only 5'9", first of all. Mm -hmm. And he's not even attractive. (laughs) He's not even that good looking. He's only moderately charming. And then, you know, he keeps messing around with these two sisters and pitting them against each other like some kind of game. That's true. I think he knows exactly what he's doing by going after Mariah. Like, he even tells Mary. He's like, I really like her because she's engaged. (laughs) Oh, God. Friggin' Henry. There we go. So him and Mrs. Norris. That's terrible company to be in. If that is your situation, you need to take a good look at yourself. Yeah. Well, Mary is his sister, so uh, she's forced to be with him, unfortunately. She's stuck. Ugh. So that's complicated, that little trio. I know. I feel like we've we've sort of already talked about the Edmund, Fanny, Mary trio uh i want to talk about this play oh my god yes let's get into this play (laughs) like you mentioned in the summary you know it edmund actually thought at some point that they may not even figure out what play that they want to do you had was it henry who wanted to do a comedy most of them wanted to do drama okay i know what i got confused tom wanted Mm -hmm. a drama right Oh, Tom. Okay, so nothing was settled, but that Tom Bertram would prefer comedy and his sisters and Henry Crawford a tragedy and that nothing in the world could be easier than to find a piece that would please them all, blah, blah, blah. Um, And at some point, I think Mary also like politely stepped back, but also sided with Tom Mm -hmm. because she's trying to get with that maybe sort of kind of. Yeah, yeah. And I understand why everyone wants to do the drama because like everybody thinks that drama is where the big the big parts are. Mhm. Everyone wants like the best character. Mhm. It's very funny to me that we have like a chapter of just them like fighting about what play to do. <laughs> and Fanny's like, "Who knows it'll probably all like fall apart because and who hasn't been in that group project before <laughs> where oh <gosh>. everybody's <laughs> just like fighting and nothing gets done. So, it's very relatable. There were in fact so many things to be attended to, so many people to be pleased, so many best characters required and above all such a need that the play should be at once both a tragedy and a comedy that there did seem as little a chance of a decision as anything pursued by youth and zeal could hold out. Did you read that earlier? I don't know, but it's a good quote, so it bears repeating, even if I did. <laughs> I just thought it was really funny uh the way that she painted in just that one line. Well, it's a very long line. But in that one line, the chaos of, mm-hmm. yes, a group project. That's exactly the dynamic. And so they end up picking this play, Lover's Vows, which I was wondering if it was real or not, which is probably like unfair because they mentioned Shake- a bunch of Shakespearean plays, like, mm-hmm. um, which is also sort of unfair that because Shakespeare's comedies are also sort of dramas. So like they could have gotten them both in. But whatever, they didn't ask me. <laughs> But so I, so even though they did mention real plays, I, the lover's vow wasn't something that I had heard of and not to toot my own horn, but I am pretty familiar in archaic uh, European plays from the 1700s. But lo and behold, it is real play. Lover's Vows is a 1798 play by Elizabeth Eichbald. And according to Wikipedia, it's a play best known for being featured in Mansfield Park. Uh, it's uh, one of at least four adaptions of August von Kultzberg's Das Kinderliebe, which is basically Love Child uh, in German. And it, 
accordingly, it apparently deals with sex outside uh, marriage and illegitimate birth. So, super good play to be uh, put on in a private ballroom. I suspect that Fanny's probably right and Edmund's probably right when they're like, "You, sh- this, what is this play? <laughs> it sounds incredibly, sc- I did, it does sound incredibly scandalous. Like we talked about at the beginning, you know, like acting in general, not super one of the most like honorable of professions and even doing it for fun seems kind of like uh, in shady territory. And a lot of the time that they, uh, a lot of the, the chapters, they tried justifying it by saying like, oh, the other family was going to do it. So like, how are they any worse than we are? You know, all that stuff basically. And I don't know. It just doesn't bode well, also, we didn't talk about Yates. <laughs> oh, Yates, my good friend Yates. <laughs> Yates really doesn't seem bothered by the fact that he couldn't do this play originally was because someone died. Well, it interfered with him being the star, Annie. <laughs> Have some pity on the actor. I don't want to stereotype, but I've definitely got a certain particular kind of character in mind for Yates. Oh, yeah. Because uh, it... Yeah. In my head, I'm like, oh, no, a whole other person now to go into to like be thrown into the mix. But now I'm like, I don't think he's going to end up in this mix of romance. He does have a crush on Julia, though. Did he like there's like a line where he's like, you know, I mean, he's, he wants to talk everyone's ear off about like being in the theater or whatever. But he like is especially interested in Julia's. Uh, yeah. Hold on, hold on. Hold on. I remember. I remember what that was, too. He tried to get her attention at dinner, and he found her gloom less in- impenetrable on any topic than that of his regret at her secession from their company. Yes, yes, yes. No, it's he's very funny because he like just wants to talk about the theater, but it's very funny because. Happily for him, the love of theater is so general and it's for acting so strong among young people that he could hardly outtalk the interests of his hearers. So yes, he's like very boring because all he wants to talk about is theater, but he's like found the perfect audience to talk about theater with. <laughs> he's like found his audience. Yeah, I don't think it was the right time though for no, Julia. No. In a way, he kind of reminds me a little bit of Mrs. Norris of looking for an audience. Mm-hmm. So I can't say I'm a fan of his. There was a moment when I'm like, oh, maybe he's like the surprise uh, solution to this love triangle and Julia ends up with him, but I don't like him. Mm-hmm. When we were going through the the choice to have a play here in the middle of the book is very interesting to me. It feels very Shakespearean, which is not mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. I would have said about any of, of the other Austin books that we've read, but it feels just very Shakespearean for them to just be like, let's have a play within a play. And for the play within a play to basically put everything into context or have like a giant metaphor sandwich like right like in the middle of, of what we're going on here. So I do think there is a very specific choice to have this play be performed outside of the fact that it's very scandalous and Edmund and Fanny are like absolutely do not do this and I'm sure there's some comeuppance that might happen. There are these very young people and they're basically figuring out their lives and they're very into drama. And so I find it fascinating that we're going to get a play. <laughs> yeah. Well, remember at the beginning of this, we're like, <sighs> so much setting has been put in place. So many stories have been put into motion. Characters have been introduced. Uh, as opposed to like the previous books that we've read where things just kind of like got paced out relatively evenly. Mm-hmm. What on earth is going to happen in the rest of this book? We have no idea. Turns out it's going to be a play that just somehow makes everything worse <laughs> i don't and there's there's so like the last group of chapters we got this very garden of eden like uh garden versus uh ha- like human building dichotomy and now we mm-hmm. get them acting and you know there's something to be said for the fact that you can act like being on the stage lets you be someone that you want to be. And a lot of these people, I think, are going to use the opportunity to be on stage to maybe air some of the feelings that they think they can't necessarily do in real life, IRL. <laughs> so that brings to mind two quotes, actually, not from the book. One of them being, you know, Shakespeare, since which seems apt, you know, like all the world's a stage. Give me, quote Shakespeare at me, please. <laughs> All the world's a stage. Um, I don't actually remember the exact quote, so that's where I'm going to stop. And the other one is Oscar Wilde. Hold on. The whole quote is, man is least himself when he talks in his own person. Give him a mask and he will tell you the truth. Uh, That's exactly what we're getting. So uh, like you said, I think we're going to get a lot of really uncomfortable truths disguised 
as a play. I mean, even the that very act of trying to pick out a, sh- a play and then give out the roles, we've already seen them just fall apart <laughs> as a group. <laughs> so the event of them actually putting a play together is so rife for tension and conflict. As this is not a group that is super good with healthy communication and emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. So somehow, despite the like high level that we've been we're operating at in the first 15 chapters, I think we're really in for it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very excited to see how this play goes. I think before I had an understanding of how they were setting the chess pieces and now I'm just like all... I don't know what's going to happen, and it's and it's funny how ominous it feels when all there is is a bunch of like spoiled rich kids putting on a play. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, spoiled rich kids doing things is one of my favorite genres of TV and film. So that's true. That's where we're at. I, I think that we're going to see. If I were to guess what we're going to see, I think that. We need to. I I need to see something with Mary. I need to get a handle on her character development and how she, the dynamic is going to be with her and Edmund. I also need to see Fanny. Something happened with Fanny where I feel more of a presence of her on the page, and I'm curious mm-hmm. how that'll work with them putting on this play. Do you think we're actually going to get the play? Oh God, I I do think so because I think it actually at least starting. I think that's the most will get of just like horrible things happening mm-hmm. um, and intention and just drama, just all the drama. I want peak Literally. drama. So the play has to happen. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I'm really into this. Yeah, I, I think we're in for it. It's exciting, but I'm also dreading it a little bit. Yeah, it's still frustrating to me. You know, I'm, I'm going out of my way to bend over backwards to see Fanny's not, maybe not bend over back. I'm going out of my way to see Fanny's point of view and to root for her because I still really mm-hmm. do want to. But my desire to like find out what happens right now is more to watch these this play sort of crash and burn than it is to see Fanny and Edmund get closer, which is interesting because I tend to think that I like Austin for the romance, but maybe I just like it for the interpersonal dynamics and romance is a part of it. I don't know. I'm having some very mm-hmm. like introspection moments. Yeah. Not that, you know, if it was just like interesting romance and uh, different societal perspectives and all that stuff you know talk about classes and whatever nothing wrong if that's all Austin ever was but it is it's been so much fun getting into this aspect of her work where there is still romance and complications and just people needing to talk to each other but the the classicism the you know a character Mm -hmm. who is not super able-bodied and is just just racked with anxiety which is incredibly relatable and complex characters that are not easy to like or dislike is so fun yeah, there's a lot to chew on, I think. <sighs> I know. This may have to be a reread in the future after some processing. Yeah, it's very uh, it's very interesting reading this as a first-time reader where I have no idea what will happen versus mm-hmm. Sense and Sensibility where I was a first-time reader, but I, but I sort of knew where the story was going to go. Mm-hmm. And this one, you know, I, I knew that Willoughby was like coming on really well and that I wanted that we were supposed to like him, but then like I was waiting for that switch with him. But here I just, I'm waiting for stuff to happen, but I don't know how it's all going to implode, <laughs> but it's mm-hmm. going to, I'm sure. Yes. This is not a book that's going to hold your hand. It's just mm-hmm. going to throw you right in. We'll see what happens. Maybe we'll float. <laughs> it does feel like a little more grown up. Like there's a line in here that I like wrote down. Um, in mm-hmm. chapter 11, um, it was a gloomy prospect and all that she could do was throw a mist over it and hope that when the mist cleared away, she would see something else. That feels so much more poetic than anything I've mm-hmm. seen Austin write before. I mean, I really enjoy her as a writer. I think she's so good in dialogue. She has this very snarky tone that I really do appreciate, but I wouldn't necessarily call her like a lyrical writer. There's nothing mm-hmm. – it's very straightforward and funny, but it's not – um, purple prosy. Yeah. Um, but that line really struck out to me. I was like, well, this is sort of like a beautiful uh, metaphorical line. Maybe are you trying something different here? I don't know. Uh, mm. I'm sort of wondering if this feels different because it really is different. 
the evolution from just from Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice to this has been so stark. It's not even like a gradual thing. And I'm looking at the publishing dates, you know, Sense and Sensibility, 1811, Pride and Prejudice, 1813. Mansfield Park was 1814. Oh, so that's a very short amount of time from the first two. And um, it, it's amazing. It, mm-hmm. It's genuinely really amazing. Well, I'm excited. I don't know. Do you have anything more you want to talk about before we go into Burns? Oh, I think we got all of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably more, but I think mm-hmm. we've done our, our job here. Um, I only really had one because there were a few moments that I thought were funny, like uh, – when I, Austin was talking about all the things that they had to attend to with picking a play, you know, the best, so many best characters required and et cetera. I thought it was a really funny way of making fun of the moment. But um, when Henry was trying to, like, I don't know, make up for or mess with Julia and put her up for Amelia instead of Agatha, Tom, who is, again, talking about his own sister, is like, <laughs> she's too tall and robust. <laughs> Amelia should be a small, light, girlish, skipping figure. It is fit for Miss Crawford and Miss Crawford only. She looks the part, and I am persuaded will do it admirably. And poor Julia, who already has her ego so wounded and bruised, is right there hearing all of this. Uh, that's really mean. <laughs> poor, poor Julia. Tom kind of sucks, too, actually. Tom <laughs> does know. suck. He does. All right. How about you? Yeah, so my, my two favorite burnish scenes are the ones we discussed where Edmund finally stands up for clergymen everywhere uh, to marry. And then also I enjoy the discussion about Sir Tom coming back and everyone being really bummed about it. But my favorite actual burn might be from chapter 13. It's the opening line about uh, Yates. Uh, the Honorable John Yates, this new friend, had not much to recommend him beyond habits of fashion and expense and being the younger son of a lord with a tolerable independence. <laughs> Which, you know, is probably enough to recommend him to, like, find a decent wife in this society, so. Probably. I'm now, like, now that you've pointed it out, I am seeing the capitalized honorable of Honorable John Yates now as very sarcastic. It's perfect. It's, it's, it's layers. It's I love layer it. Burn. She doesn't fail us, this Jane Austen lady. She's a good writer, what? I, I know, hot takes. So, obviously we have so much more to talk about um, coming up. Lord knows there was a lot to talk about already. Next time we'll be covering chapters 16 through 20 of Mansfield Park. Uh, if you have anything that you want to ask us or talk about in the previous chapters or in what's coming up, please, please, please email us. We like to talk about things. No. Especially if you're a first-time reader or if this is one of your favorite Austin books, I would love to hear you talk about it. Mm -hmm. And you can do that. How, Jesse? Uh, you can find us at thedailynightly.com. You can find us on Twitter at NightlyPod, on Instagram at thedailynightly, and by email uh, at thedailynightly at gmail.com, uh, nightly spelled K-N-I-G-H-C-L-E-Y. And also, please rate and review us on your pod host of choice. That's how people find us. If you write down your thoughts in a review, maybe one day we'll find it and we'll read it on air. I don't know. That's something that happens on other podcasts, so I think it can happen here. Also, thank you to Kevin McLeod for the awesome music that we use at the beginning and end of every podcast. And we look forward to hearing from you guys. Yes. Till next time, everyone. Happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading.